and it's like, um, what was that Robert Linklater movie? Oh, now you're, um, what was it? Something dark, skin, um, Scanner Darkly. Oh, Scanner Darkly. Yeah. Yeah. For a minute you looked like that. Yeah. <laughs> this is John Mejias on the East Coast. And this is Zach Smith in Los Angeles. You're listening to We Eat Art, a podcast where we talk to a real live visual artist about muscle memory. This episode, we're talking to Diana Cooper, who lives in Brooklyn. Hi. Hi. Uh, I mean, I've been a big fan for a long time. I love these intricate drawings and paintings you do and the constructions. So, according to Wikipedia, your parents are artists. Is that right? <laughs> Our sources tell us. Oh gosh, so I can't lie. Okay, um, Wikipedia. Well, you can tell me, us keep me what's honest, true, and you can tell us what you want people to believe, and we can just put whatever we'll edit together one, whichever the more interesting one is. No, no, that actually is true. My parents, they, in fact, they met at the Boston Museum School in a after they both graduated, and they uh, neither of them majored in art, but they're both artists. So I grew up in an incredibly art-saturated environment. And my mother's heroes were like Ang and John Singer Sargent, and my father's heroes were more like Donald Judd. Or, so they, they really had very little in common. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> there were problems. <laughs> Already, this this is different because your parents weren't like, "What are you doing with your life?" Your no, I were... never. No, I didn't have that. <laughs> well, I mean, is your mom like, "What are you doing with your life?" Because you're not, you know, making things that are recognizable, and your dad's like, "What are you doing? These aren't simple. They're complicated." <laughs> um, well, this one sad thing is, my dad um, died before I just I actually made the change in my life and and chose to be an artist. I I wonder sometimes if I would have become an artist if my father hadn't died. Um, Mm. And that's not because I wanted to follow in his footsteps. I think it was more that we were very close and uh, and both my parents really valued art above everything and I think that just the power, like most things that one would choose to do with their life just don't really compare to being creative, I think. And I dance. So I, I was in, I did visual art because we were just, you know, I was just drawing and painting since I was, like, could hold a pen um, or a crayon, I guess. Though we weren't crayon, a crayon family. We, we were magic marker. This must be noted. <laughs> I don't know. John teaches art to little kids, and I have always thought that crayons are the most demoralizing medium next to charcoal. But, okay. You can't make anything that looks like what you see in the world as art using that material. Yeah. You're like, what the this, this is what I have to say to seven-year-olds. You can draw with markers, but please don't color the whole page with markers because you know, the paper's just going to turn to mush. It's going to get on your hands. Let's fill some things in with crayon. I mean, of course, I'd rather be painting, but they're always like, can we just color everything with markers? And the answer's, how do you feel about that? Is that bad advice I'm giving the kids? Well, you know, my first teaching experience was teaching kids, and it was this crazy 
wonderful program at the 92nd Street Y, which they Ooh. discontinued. I don't know uh-huh. why. It had been in existence for like over 25 years. It was called Red, Yellow, Blue, and Glue. One of the things that we... we well, we used... Gosh, we used crayons, probably. I mean, there was all these things that were part of it because it was not like I was creating it from scratch. Um, so it was different materials that were colored. But the thing I always remember was that trying to communicate to like a three or four year old that glue is not the same as a marker. (laughs) And and, and it was just so funny, you know, because it was, of course, they're just like, well, there's my life. Yeah. yeah, There's like, you know, you know, there's red paint and then there's this really cool stuff that's white and gloppy and, I want to use that too in the same way that I'm using the paint or the marker. And that was always really funny for me because I kind of identified with that. It was like, so what I was going to ask is that where your 3D stuff came from? <laughs> kind of like, yeah, let's just go with the glue, you know? <laughs> let's, let's give it an upgrade. It's been... <laughs> it's materials exploration. That's what we're doing, everybody. <laughs> but I thought of it when you said the mush with the markers because obviously <laughs> if you cover a page with glue um, you're getting pretty soggy soggy right. paper but you, th- you thought it was important to tell us that you guys used markers instead of crayons, crayons. okay no I mean oh, I yeah. feel like that's the mark of mark of a serious art household like <laughs> they give kids watercolors which it's almost impossible to make like a sharp. You can't make a Hello Kitty face with a fucking watercolor, especially. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you're trying to make Big Bird with a crayon. It's like you got this line that's like all wiggly, wiggly. And bleeds out, and it's like, why do they start kids off with these materials? So they won't die, I guess, or make yeah. the paper all mushy. But your parents um, understood markers and art. So my parents taught, and my father taught in private schools. And so we always lived on campuses. So I was born in Greenwich, Connecticut, which I'll never be able to change. I guess I could have changed that. You know, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I could have lied and said, I'm, like, you know, I was born in Vegas or something. But um, my father was um, teaching at Greenwich Country Day School, and I have three brothers, so my mom was busy with four children. We lived on the campus, and in fact, this is true, we lived on a, the playground of the school. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> Which I always just thought was normal, even until a few years ago. I'm sorry, was there just a house in the middle of the playground? Yeah, it was like a little house. Yeah, really little and cute. And you just walk out the door, and there were swings and um, slides and... You know, those ones that are really hard where you're, you know, going like The rings. Yeah, the rings. The kickball just bounce off the window once in a while. (laughs) No, there was no, uh, you know, we never had any problems like that. Now, the thing is that we always notice, like, whatever the the weird detail is ends up being important in the art, you know? So, (laughs) like... We have to connect playground to your art playground somehow. Um, Makes little... Okay. Uh... (laughs) You were in choreography, but you were also doing other creative stuff. And you, but you were not when you were younger. You didn't want to be a fine artist right away, or that wasn't. No, 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 I didn't. I mean, I I loved it, but I, I, I honestly felt that I was 
my 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 strongest impulse as a child was was moving and and dancing and and there is a funny story that my mom put me in ballet class i think i was 4 or 5 when i started because um well my mother loved loved dance um, but she never did it herself but because she said that i would like move to any sound to the toilet flushing to the washing machine that i would be like there dancing All right. Um, to move, like, just just feeling the rhythm, getting the rhythm. Mm-hmm. Rhythm's gonna get you. So um, she, she noticed this, but this is unusual. And that was when I was like three or four or something. And so that was when it started. And then I was in ballet, which I've never been very good at taking directions. Uh, in fact, I'm really, really bad at taking directions. So ballet was hard because it's all about taking directions and um, I also have no sense of direction I can't tell my left from my right so that also is very challenging yeah Yeah. (laughs) so you know especially if you're at the front you know you're in the ballet class and you're a little girl and you know you want to do everything right and and somehow you're the first one has to sashay across the room and everyone's going to go and you know and they say start with your left foot or your right foot and if you don't know you're going to collide with another child. <laughs> yeah, so it was... It was I'm picturing like a Lucille Ball kind of, a, kind of a thing happening here. <laughs> so it was, that was stressful. The reason I loved it was at the end of the, the ballet class, and I am not kidding, the teacher who, I think she was originally from Russia, I'm not sure, but she was certainly not American, and she was a real character, older woman, and her name was... Felicity Foot. Nice. <laughs> and she was formidable. I mean, she was tiny, you know, like a tiny ballerina, older. But what she would let us do at the end was that they had these filtered lights, so this huge room. It was huge, this place, or at least that's my memory of it. I was small, but sure, I, it was sure. pretty big. It was a fabulous place. And they had lights spots with different filters and so if you were fast enough you could you know get under the light you wanted to get under and then that was improvisation time and that was the part of the class that I lived for and that was my favorite part of the class and so when I remember one that I like so much is she's like imagine you're an ice cube and you're slowly melting and then you you create mm-hmm. based on that. Mm-hmm. And so that was, that was, that was the hook <laughs> for me. Yeah. Um, and music and music and just the relationship to making movement to sound. Yeah. So that was what it was, even though it sounds funny that it's in the context of ballet, which you associate with the most restricted and prescribed kind of movement and, steps and, and and everything but um and and then I did ballet up until I went on point and at that point no pun intended I realized I wasn't a masochist and I went to, into modern throughout high school I choreographed we, there was a dance club at, at my school this was at master school in Dobbs Ferry New York where my father taught um and my mother my teacher there was a former Alvin Ailey uh, dancer, and she was... Oh, this is serious. She this was serious fa- dance. She was, she was phenomenal. She, oh, my God, she was So, phenomenal. So what are you doing making visual art now? How'd you, how'd you make the switch? What happened? 
Well, it's a sad story. I had um, it's sort of biology is destiny, and I I just was born with bad knees. Oh, and also with um, bad back, and just started having injuries, like injuries around here, injuries on my back, injuries on my my um, my knees. So. I would be in excruciating pain sometimes, or I'd have to lie for like day a day, or sometimes you know, two days flat on my back. Mm. Um, you know, I had heating. This is pads, tragic. Chiropractor. I went to chiropractors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like up until this part, you were like living in a child's, like in a children's book. Like yeah. Felicity Foot was like telling you to be an ice cube, and you're like living on the playground, and, and now it's just all. It's and then I high said, school, "What happened?" I don't know. And, yeah, no, it was. I mean, it was. Um, it was like a death. I mean, it was before my father died, but it was like a death. Um, I went to like this famous sports doctor that I was able to go to through my dance teacher because of her, you know, her past and her connections with the the dance world. Hannibal Foot. <laughs> I don't remember his name, but it was I was very, very lucky to see him because he was, you know, he was like the sports doctor of the stars and I went just once for an evaluation and, and I'll never forget though he said he said the three hardest things on the body are ballet, football, and gymnastics. Uh, he just said they just do so much damage to the body, you know. Um, and, yeah, so I was basically told that I had to, uh, there was no way I could continue. And, you know, things are much better now with knee surgery and all of these things. There's, I think, much more sophisticated and successful approaches. But at the time, knee surgery was not the thing that you would want to do. It did not have a very good success rate. So that was really, really um, very, very hard but I was always making art. I was also sort of, you know, very interested in literature and poetry and and I sang. I'm kind of interested in just, like, what you were into. Like, what was the music that you liked, that you were dancing to? What was the, the books oh, yeah. you were into reading? Like, what, what were those? You know, with the music, <laughs> you know, I was a, a, you know, a young girl listening to some pretty good music and some really not so good music. Like I choreographed something to Chopin, but I also choreographed something to Dust in the Wind. (laughs) (laughs) I'm getting a picture. (laughs) But then I also choreographed a piece that um, I um, named, I think it was Incubus, that was to... The experimental musician, incredible musician Harry Parch. I, mean, I don't know if you're familiar. My sound with engineers it. like, oh yeah, Harry Parch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Built his own instruments. Phenomenal. I mean, really incredible. So my my musical tastes and exposure also evolved, and and somewhat through um, my family, people we knew. And also my dance teacher, Marlene Furtick, um, you know, so she introduced me to, you know, Fats Waller, you know, and she choreographed a piece to Fats Waller that I was in. She brought in a choreographer, guest choreographer, who did a piece on the dance club, and it was um, 
like a French electronic composer from the time, and I'm not going to remember the name of the composer, but that was very unusual. It was introduced to Duke Ellington and um, Billie Holiday. You this know, is all good music. Yeah, yeah. So, Just that one in the wind. Yeah. It's the only miss. Right? <laughs> uh, well, there are others, but I, I, I won't embarrass, <laughs> embarrass myself them. anymore. Yeah, yeah, so it really opened up some incredible music to me and just listening to music in a different way and, you know, looking at music for as something you're going to move to or choreograph or build something around is is very different than listening to music like Dust in the Wind. Or, right. Do, um, you, do you make art listening to music now? Is it important? Oh, my God. I, I always say that part of the reason I, I chose to be an artist was because I wanted to do something where I could work and listen to music at the same time. You definitely get that impression, like, there are these structures, and then they build out in the pieces, like, in, in your, you know, especially the drawn and painted ones that you can see, like, you know, maybe in real time, you know, like, there's, like, a a shit because music you know there's a an underlying structure and then you build out from there and, and then you yeah. kind of solo out in different ways i mean it looks like a some of them look like a kind of notation no that's interesting you say that because when i was um in rome um i was at the american academy there were two young composers there and one of them jefferson friedman he gave a talk where he showed his notations and I couldn't get over how beautiful they were and I and how they looked like drawings and they were fascinating and I started to become interested in that because I think I just was ignorant of that and I thought of you know when I see a sheet of music but I didn't realize all that's going on and all the idiosyncrasies of notation that composers are are using and creating and working with. I mean, choreography has that. I never learned those languages, but that's also yeah. a very interesting visual world. Too. Yeah, Stockhausen but, has these diagrams because he's using, like, so many different instruments. You know, you can't just use regular notes, and so he would have, like, these wiggly lines, and, you know, so you could coordinate all these different shapes. Yeah, I mean, I can see how that it's, like, rhythmic, and there's a sort of repeating structures that repeat out until they sort of become chaotic and they, you know, they build on each other. Yeah. I mean, the, the person I was listening to, I did choreograph one song to her, but the person who I really became completely obsessed with and was um, Joni Mitchell. Mm-hmm. And I remember that also as just being really important. And then, and then learning later, you know, that she... She's really, really hard for people to play because she uses, she creates her own chords. She sets, she tunes her her guitar in these really odd, strange ways, and so she's really, really tricky. But so, okay, so you were doing that, and you were also choreographing, and you were also doing your majoring literature reading. Well, I was doing all this in high school. Right. I was so I was just studying the regular things, and though my Probably my strongest subject was history, actually. And uh, then I, in college, I did a double major in history and literature. And I wrote my senior thesis on Virginia Woolf. 
And I first encountered Virginia Woolf in high school. The yellow dress? No, no, that's uh, Charlotte Gilmore. Are you thinking of the yellow wallpaper? Am I? Well, I'll figure um, it out. You can, oh, okay. don't worry about me. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll figure out what I did wrong. <laughs> I think it's Charlotte Gilmore, Charlotte Perkins, the yellow wallpaper. But I'm thinking, I'm uh, Mrs. Dalloway to the lighthouse. Those are her two. So her big ones for you. Oh, the new dress, not the yellow dress. Oh! <laughs> the new dress is yellow, if I remember correctly. <laughs> Trying to save himself yeah, now. It totally is. <laughs> new dress is Virginia Woolf's short story about Mabel Waring, who attends a social gathering wearing a new yellow oh, dress. That's okay, what we had to okay. read in high school. Redeemed. He's redeemed. Okay, sorry. <laughs> no, you're right. I was when wrong. I heard the word yellow, right. the yellow, I guess, stood out because I was thinking of the yellow wallpaper. I think, it, in fact, it, my mother, both my parents were huge influences on me, and my mother had shown me Virginia Woolf and interestingly my mother was not a fan but she felt there was something that I would respond to. Was she consistently like the classicist because she was into Aang was she like always the one who would be like well this is new or this is modern and you like modern things so was it like that? Well no she she actually loved James Joyce Mm. so but she just didn't uh, connect with Virginia Woolf is my memory, but she understood her genius. I, I believe she did. But I remember, yeah, I have this incredible memory of my mom, you know, and this is in high school, sitting down and she started reading it out loud or then I was reading it out loud and just listening to the, um, and I just felt like it was like nothing I'd ever read because at that point I probably read Portrait, Joyce's Portrait of an Artist or Dubliners. I hadn't read... Yeah, that stuff is not as as musical. It's not as poetic. Yeah, so I wasn't, I didn't have a point of comparison at that point. And I just remember thinking, I have never, I've never heard anything like this. I just thought it was so remarkable the way she just let her mind just bounce in this way that I felt that feels so true. Like that feels like, I immediately felt an affinity to the way she was putting the interior, our interior monologue or our, our psychology and how she was able to communicate that in this way that was, I just, yeah, never forgot it. And so then I, I revisited that in, in college when I was like a sophomore, junior in college and just started reading everything. And it, there was also in her, I felt, like a part of the history or the po- political because she was also this woman in the, in the, you know in a very man's world and dealing with those issues like you know a room of one's own is just such a brilliant piece of writing about you know something very historical political but in such a beautiful poetic way so i felt like she was someone who didn't sacrifice the artistry of writing and the creativity of writing like when she would take on a subject that was overtly political or personally political. It's an essay you can read like a, like a, like a novel. Yeah, and so I think that also was very important to me. Was that the history era that you were doing, like you were doing early 20th century? Or no, you were, no. What were you into history-wise? I, I was doing the 18th, mostly 19th century 
um, into the early 20th century. Um, I was at Harvard, and at the time, you, you couldn't do something past 1960. So there wasn't an option, in, pretty much, I think, in most fields. And I think yeah. the thinking was that it was too... It wasn't yet history. You right. Know, there was, you know, it was still very much in the mix, and, and there needed to be more time or more reflection. And so it was a, certainly a, a very conservative position. You know, for instance, I, I took I took courses with T.J. Clark. I took a lot of, of art history, and I graduated in '86. And I just read, recently read it was a cover piece in the Times about all these women shows, and it was talking about the Hauser and Worth sculpture show, and and it said that Jan, Jansen, if I'm remembering this correctly, I just read this a couple of weekends ago, didn't have a single woman in the entire book until 1987. Uh I graduated in 1986, and I remember T.J. Clark kind of going off off a little bit of the the Jansen. I remember incorrectly, he introduced me to, this was to be 84 probably, or 83, to Frida Kahlo, and he dedicated a lecture to Frida Kahlo. And I realize now she would not have been in Jansen. She wasn't in the book, yes. Yeah. Because this was a fine arts. I took took Uh post-impressionism with him, but I took fine arts 13 second. Fine arts 13 there is like, you know, from Lascaux to who would have been to probably to de Kooning or something. I don't know. It was an entire year course, and so it was a second semester and also Sue Ko, he talked about as well. Oh, nice. Yeah. But I, I, but I was struck just a few weeks ago thinking that, like, oh, my God, there was not a woman <laughs> in <up>. that book <laughs> <Right>. when <laughs> I was in college. Uh-huh. And then he did this lecture. There's, like, Artemisia Giantileschi and Frida Kahlo. And then, like, I think they start, the surrealists, they start stuffing in. You know, they're like, Dorothea Tan, you know, they get everybody, you know, now, it, it can honor in Fleming and stuff. I mean, before that, it's like... They, so Georgia O'Keeffe was not in Jansen before 1987. You know, people that you would think there's no debate. Yeah, Margaret Bourke-White, you know, Claude Cahoon. Hannah Hawk wouldn't have been in, I mean, right. you know, people that... Kathy Colwitz. Yeah. In the I mean, 90s, just, we've all seen just, like a spate of shows of like, you know, women in surrealism and stuff. And it's like those were probably really important in the on the academic end because they were like, oh, now there's a survey book. Someone's got paid to do all the research. Now we can put them in those. You know what I mean? Like at the time, yeah. we're just like, oh, it's good. You know, it's a show. It's good. It, like it's probably the last 20, 30 years of shows have been museum shows have probably been a really big deal to getting those into the surveys in an, you know, in an easier way. Yeah. Though I still can't get over the fact that, you know, the Ava Hess show that had been at San Francisco MoMA and was slotted to becoming a, to, slotted for the, I'm trying to remember if it was MoMA or the Whitney, and then it was canceled. Um, so the retrospective never came, the, the full-on retrospective. Why was it canceled? You know, I... I I don't remember, but I feel like it wasn't, there was no good reason Mm. for it. 
but that was, uh, and that wasn't long ago, because that was in the early 2000s, I think, I want to say, 2003, 2004. I haven't really thought about this before. It seems like Eva Hess and Lee Bontecu are kind of artists whose work relates to your 3D stuff a little. I was thinking of Lee Bontecu when I saw your stuff, definitely. Yeah, Lee Bontecu was huge. And, you know, here's back to my incredible upbringing that my parents knew that work. They didn't know her, but so I saw that work when I was a child and I would ask, you know, about it or we'd talk about it. And, you know, because she was so successful and so she was in all the permanent collections so she would be in in a museum collection or she had that big piece at Lincoln Center and it might still be there and so you'd encounter her work in 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 public venues too and it's not the kind of thing that you don't notice um, yeah you know, <laughs> I mean, the weird thing about her is I feel like I, she hadn't didn't have any major stuff about her until the 90s or zeros even. Like, it was hard to find information about her because I think she had gone really reclusive after yes. the 50s. And then and she had all this work. Yeah, so I, I was always, like, looking for stuff and aware of her. I feel like just also with, I mean, a very different artist, but when I first came to New York in the late 80s was... Um, I mean, obviously, Lee Bontecu was, was much earlier, and I, I was aware of her when I was a kid. But with um, someone like Elizabeth Murray was so striking, too, because of them saying enough with, you know, the either the impenetrable square or rectangle or the, you know, the, the, the kind of the dominance of a geometric form. So if you, you know, in the case of someone like, Elizabeth Murray, you know, the sense that even with people who were going outside of it, like someone like like Frank Stella at that time, this is yeah. pre- Elizabeth Murray was just so exciting. Yeah. I saw her speak once, and it made me so happy the rest of the day. Like, I gotta make some stuff. She's so much more fun than Frank Stella. <laughs> yeah. But usually, like, it's just like, you know, those pieces, like, on paper are very similar, but hers have this, like... I always think of pre-Nickelodeon kind of thing. Like, like there's something so, like... It, like, Frank Stella's pieces feel like Frank Stella from the 1960s. His idea of what fun is... <laughs> like, his later constructions are like, well, let's do something fun. I'll He's cut one fun. of these up and put them together. And then hers are just like, wow! You know? <laughs> yeah, and also I feel that with hers... And I don't know, you know, I, I saw the, the Frank Stella show at the, the Whitney, so it's, it's fresh in my mind, but I don't know how the dates correlate, but the thing also I, I think of with Elizabeth Murray is the acrobatics of it that are still linked to the rectangle. So it's like these things are just like exploding out or they're they're kind of... They're funny, but they're also, if a painting was a contortionist. There's an itchy like kind this. of tension in a yeah. lot, like where it's like almost, you know? And so you, your, your, your eye is always kind of pushing it like back to see if, you know, see if it like puzzle pieces together, but it doesn't. And so it's, there's definitely like a compression or something. Oh, yeah. Or like it's like rubber bands, like if a painting is sure. a rubber band. <laughs> 
but I think I was attracted to Elizabeth Murray. I mean, in hindsight, I think I was very excited by that work and and very excited by Lily Bonnecke work. And this is before she's, you know, rediscovered and, and such. Just what she's doing and with the rectangle and with these voids and the sort of danger as well this the, with with someone like Bonticu, the there's also this incredible sense of menace and psychology to the work i have a a, a lee bonticu story i was in a show with lee bonticu and a contemporary sculptor gay outlaw at the sculpture center and this would have been here in new york and Oh my goodness, the early 2000s, maybe 2000, 2001. And I was so, and this is before the Lee Bonticu show at when MoMA was out in Queens. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was so excited about this because Lee Bonticu was just one of my heroes. And I then learned that she was a recluse and that in fact any show that you saw of hers was not, because she had okayed it. It was work that was coming from work that Leo Castelli still owned or was in private collections and didn't require her permission. So I was in this show with her, but she was not at all involved in the show and um, she certainly wasn't there. And I remember just being so, you know, sort of disappointed Uh, by that. I don't know, she was the Salinger of art. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating, but it's amazing what she did. And and I, I wonder if she could have done the things that then she did if she had been in, in the throes of the, the art world, you know, that she was able to... It's like 30 years that she was reclusive. I mean, she was able to keep working, which a lot yeah. of people wouldn't have been able to because they wouldn't have been able to, like, afford it, basically. And she taught it at, at um, Brooklyn College. And so she would just come in and teach sculpture and go back to Pennsylvania. That would have been fun. I know. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, it's hard to even imagine. Yeah. Wow. But I I remember around that time, Costelli, uh, in his uptown space, had a Lee Bontecu show. And it would have been in the late 90s, if I'm not mistaken. And it had all the crazy plastic work, like the Mm. plastic fish and the plastic flowers. And... I was just blown away. I was so blown away by this work. And that was the work she was starting to do when she left Castelli and left New York. So she was starting this totally new kind of work and was not, if I'm remembering correctly, was not being well received. And, you know, was, I think, I mean, I might be wrong here, but facing that that problem of, you know, that, that someone like Gustin famously faced, you know, going from the abstraction to the to the cartoony work where people people liked what they were doing and want them to change. But now all this time later, the cartoony work, I think people say that's the best, do they not? Am I making this up? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, so. yeah. And there's, I mean, it might be totally false. It's that, the, the Kooning-Gustin story where... Gustin has his first show of the new work. Everyone's and, like, what the hell? Yeah, and it's just people are, even sh- doing? Are, are not shunning him, but it's not not a pleasant experience for him. And de Kooning t- 
takes him outside or something or takes him aside in the in the opening and he's like you are free you are free and i mean that's not what he said exactly but basically he's like you've done it you're free you know and i don't know if it's true <laughs> and i'm probably as i since i don't know how to tell a joke i certainly can't remember quotes Sometimes, <laughs> as david lee roth said the, the, the legend is better than the what happened you know the way i heard it was that he said you know de Kooning or somebody said you know this isn't about art this is about freedom okay oh that's good too and i'm like okay i mean that's 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 somebody like trying to buck you up for sure but I mean, to me, the interesting thing about de Kooning and that work is that we have this image in our minds that like when work is rejected, it's rejected like the terrible reviews and then people are in the streets crying and then they're just get out of here, Mozart or whatever. It's just like this dramatic thing. But I think like what really happens when art is changing and people don't recognize it is critics have realized that you don't want to be like, this is blasphemy because that only makes the artist more powerful. Mm -hmm. And maybe this is also the emotion that they feel these days, is they sort of ignore and dismiss it as being like, oh, well, you're out the game now. You know, like it's not, you're not, you've slid backwards. Like in that time, it would have been very easy when abstraction was ruling to be like anything that wasn't abstraction anymore was sliding back into some more pre-avant-garde. And now it's like, you know, people who are making, you know, then pop art, if you read the, or the reviews, like that, that moment when pop art and, and abstraction were fighting, it was so easy for the critics who had supported abstraction to just describe pop art as, oh, well, you're going back to making yeah. stuff again. Like they called, the early pop art was called Neo Dada. You know, oh, it was right. like, and, and, and everything new these days is always called Neo something old. Because they yeah. don't, they don't. The people who are making it see something. They see a thread that the older people are just trying to like. Like it's like when you hear a new song and you're like, ah, oh, this is just like fucking Black Sabbath. You know, like because yeah. <laughs> you're old, you know, and you're like you're like trying to put it, you know, fix it to yeah. something. Yeah. Whereas the people making it are like, no, or you know, Bontecue might have run into that, but I mean. I've, I wonder what she thought of, like, Alien, you know? Because I feel like that is a Lee Bontecou well, movie, yeah. you know? Well, like I was about to mention that, too. Yeah, the science fiction component yeah. of her work. No, that's that's an interesting point. And her yeah. works on paper, the way she, like, looks so much like... I, I feel so like Giger saw her. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, because I... When I first saw it, I thought alien. Then I thought, like, I'm just a dork. I don't know art. So I'm glad that Zach brought it up first. Like, <laughs> and I almost, I got in trouble because I came very close to it at MoMA, looking at it to figure out how it was made. And the security guard's like, hey, get away from there. I never, I never got to touch it. So. <laughs> That's so true. There is this thing about, particularly in the drawings, that, that has that quality and has this science fiction quality that then takes you into a place that you're sort of like am I in art or am I moving into this other sort of not not outsider in the sense of an outsider artist but you know one of these other art worlds that's right, not yeah. part of the not as expensive the status uh, quo um, <laughs> yeah I think that's also a power in her work is the courage to do that and to embrace that um, and play with that as well. I mean, I, I personally love science fiction. Um, Some of your work 
looks like science fiction to me is in like a long time ago what they thought things would look like in the future. In the 80s, this is what it's going to look like. Yeah. Forever from now. I think of like circuits and networks, you know, like yeah. a cyberpunk, yeah. uh, the sort of Neil Stevenson kind of like new ecology kind of thing, mm-hmm. like something like that. So yeah. are we are we really far off? I mean, we know you're not a Trekkie. No, but I've been, like, when I worked with Pom Poms, I had so many people telling me that I had to see a particular episode of Star Trek. Oh, yeah. With the... the Trouble with triffles. Thank you. <laughs> um, and then uh, then my, uh, a show in 08, um, my piece, um, Orange Alert UK, that had started in London, but then I exhibited it in at Mocha Cleveland and then at Postmasters. And I had young, you know, young assistants working with me and things. And I'd say about three different people independently said about that piece, um, Orange Alert UK, that, oh, you you must have seen these video games, those, these early video games from, I don't know when this would be, because I'm not, I don't play video games. Right. But they were like, this is so like these video games. And I don't know if that means anything, like if you were to look at an image of it, because I kept wanting to remember what it was just to see, because, you know, if if three people say something... Check it out. It could be like (laughs) Defender or something, maybe. Like like a side-scroller, but basically you you have this landscape, which is flat, and then you've got this square, and you've got things moving left and right across it. I mean, they had to make these things with a very reduced language, you know. Right. And, and so, you you chose a reduced language, and then you know for, they had to make landscapes, and you're just you know. So I can see, like, I mean, I feel like Ava Hess was also like there was some very science fiction things about her work, but they were in such a protoplasmic state. Like, they didn't look <laughs> yeah. like... You You didn't name the things, you know? And that was part yeah. of the, the what made it her work, you know? Cause, so it wasn't a thing, it was a feeling about a thing. I mean, I feel like in a, in a video game, especially those older ones, they have an idea of what's happening, like uh, your spaceship flying through space, and then they reduce it down to a set of symbols. And then if you reduce that even more then it would be like this dream space of just symbols, whereas Eva's doing a lot of, is like starting on the other end, starting Mm -hmm. with the feeling. And and they end up at a similar place, but that is a, it's neither, you know, it doesn't represent Mm -hmm. another thing, but it also isn't just pure emotions and images in your head. It's like a, this other space that you stumble upon from two different directions, you know? Yeah, yeah. Also, I'm just thinking of Eva Hess um, as also someone who was exciting to me because of the paintings also, you know, and seeing her, you know, her early work and the paintings which are playing with appendages or attachments and, you know, three-dimensional elements and then her moving into into sculpture and installation from that. Yeah, no, there is something like, the, like you said, the sort of protoplasmic or the sort of gelatinous 
quality that, uh, that, that she has. And then, and it's as if she uses this, like the series or the serial or repetition, which we associate with, you know, it's certainly in nature, but we also can associate it with mass production or mechanical production. But then the things that are being produced uh, look like, you know, I don't know, the, some sort of, <laughs> I don't know, sometimes an innard of some creature, an alien, you know. That, uh, and so there's an interesting sort of systematic uh, or, or a, a, a creating a system of something that doesn't look like it would be repeated. Um, That's something I actually wanted to ask about because I was thinking about like composition, like uh, in 2D, like classical composition of a picture. It's usually about placement of things in a stable rectangle so that your eye goes to certain places in the rectangle. And it's like your eye moves, the picture sits still. You know, like, oh, you look at the apple and you look at the person's eye and you look at their leg. But I feel like your kind of way of com uh, composition isn't about that. It's about movement uh, across the space. Like, it grows in different directions. It's about the, the instrument you're using is creating a, a movement which goes in different directions. And it looks like some of your pictures get your, your 3D stuff you're like, how much of the room is in the composition? Like, do I want to keep going? Like, it, it's yeah. growing, you know? Yeah. I mean, as you're describing it that way, I think that's where you might come back to choreography or dance for me, which is was not conscious in any way. I, I did not think, oh, I couldn't become a choreographer or dance, so I'm going to somehow approximate it. It, it really came very organically. But that some one who was a dancer in fact made the observation at an opening of mine once she just said you're still a you're still a dancer you're still a choreographer and it was in the context of my piece swarm and i was so happy to hear it you know because i hadn't thought of it consciously but i think that because of that impulse that that or 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 that history for me and the history that's in my body as well i was like what is it what do they call it motor um, muscle memory muscle memory that that the way you're describing my work makes me think about that and how that in, can inform some of the way in which I tackle an artwork or tackle a space um, but I also think that uh, that because of drawing and doodling or drawing and painting being so essential to my beginnings that I I do always think about the the wall or the the space in a certain way so that I want there to be a tension like between confinement and or between containment and contain what's the opposite of containment overflow mm. and I think that you know back to someone like Lee Bontecue, I think something, or even Elizabeth Murray, that's also exciting to me that the container is still there. And that, so that a lot of the tension is coming from the fact that the painting, the, the easel painting or the heroic abstract painting or whatever is still there in Elizabeth Murray and the contained, perfectly taut painting surface is still there in Bontecue, and it's that's where so much and some of the power comes from. That it isn't a complete explosion. It's like there are these. It's this tension 
for me that um, is exciting. But I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I that mean, without room. that, it's about you've claimed the whole room as the space, and you've got to do something with the whole room. It's like a, it's like I mean, I was gonna, like Alien, the movie works because it's about a contained space. Like, if they were just fighting yeah. the alien in all of outer space, it would not be a very it, scary movie, it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I love the alien movie. I mean, the first two were my yeah. personal favorites. But Those are, yeah, the yeah. good ones. When you're drawing a painting, it's easy to see, like, how these kinds of, like, are improvised shapes, and you kind of draw them out. The work still looks improvised, but in the constructions it's in some cases it's obvious that you had to go and manufacture or get like a big mm-hmm. semi-geometric shape and it feels like a weird like if i imagine making it it's a strange change in the process because it's almost like three or four dance step you've almost like sampled some dancing and stuck it in to an mm-hmm. improvised so you, it's like you have to stop <laughs> prepare something in advance do an indirect process Yes. So it seems stri- like a little bit, like it changes the energy of the piece because yeah. it's pre-manufactured. And I'm just wondering, how do you work with that? And how do you think of it when you're making it? Do you make a little thing and, and you kind of, I don't know where I'm going to stick this, but. No, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great question. And it's very, very difficult because it sort of takes it into the world of manual labor and also premeditation which is sort of the antithesis of the, the, the sort of the doodle model that has been so... Whimsical. Yeah, yeah. And so it suddenly it becomes work. Um, yeah. And I know that's the life of a, you know, of, of a sculptor, certainly, you know, that there's so much time where you're just executing an idea. And I think I started feeling that even before doing anything that was prefabricated, not that I've done much that I haven't actually built myself, but just with the three-dimensional component, when I decide, you know, I want to make a whole bunch of a certain thing, you know, it's a very different process from drawing something many, many times versus I'm going to make these little cubes or these little, you know, these little weird thimble forms. And that becomes manual labor and you just have to do it. The ditch digging and of it. And then you get, and then, you know, that's when assistants, I started working with um, assistants, and uh, I have very mixed feelings about that. Do you trust that. them? I was about, yeah, we're getting into a whole thing now, assistants. Well, <laughs> it's not that. It's more that it's, um, I, I've worked with some amazing people, amazing artists, so this is in no way a criticism of them. It's more just the the thing about, what changes in the studio when you have an assistant is that the biggest thing that changes is that after you get used to the weirdness of having someone in the room with you when you are used to being alone, sure. is that you have to give them something to do. So then it's sort of like a chicken and the egg. It's like at first you have something to give them to do, but then in that need to give them something to do, which is something you can allocate to someone else, so that means it has a prototype and they are going to repeat it, and they're going to right. they're going to make many of it. Does that then start 
redirecting your work a little like when I worked I haven't worked with a laser cutter many times in my life but I had an art residency up at Cornell many years ago now I was a visiting artist and they the print department had just bought a, um, a laser cutter and so I got to use it and um, abuse it um, <laughs> nice and I felt like well first of all I felt like I couldn't stop watching it I felt like it was I was watching like a brain that had no that was just i don't know what it was like uh, well it certainly was a brain with no body but it was also a brain that had no id or 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 it was like the um like the engineer yeah 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 well no that's not fair to engineers and I remember you're not supposed to look at it because you know because you know, you're looking at a laser and your eyes are you know are are exposed and it's really bad. But it was as if it was a oh it, it was like a moth to you know to a flame. Sure. You can't not look at it. But the thing about it was, oh my God, this is the machine, and it's hungry. And I thought this is a this is designed for mass production. This is the capitalist. You know, this is the cap capitalism's toy dream or dream. wet dream or whatever. <laughs> and and I thought, oh, this is dangerous because it does certain things really well and it can do it much faster than a human. And it and it does it in this way that is it, it doesn't need to think. It just does. It's like just pure will. And but human then, things are so beautiful and mistakes are so beautiful. The human touch is what makes things beautiful, in my opinion. Well, that's what I was thinking, is that this thing is designed, it only really works if you have a prototype or you have a patent or you have whatever you have, and it's doing it a million trillion times. Mm -hmm. And so then I was thinking, oh my gosh, it's a little like... It, it's a little like this problem I was thinking about the assistant, but it's like the assistant on steroids. That then it's like you're you're coming up with things to feed it. A little like the way our relationship is with a computer. That we're always saying, um, you know, the computer is so smart, but we just give the computer things that the computer is by nature good at doing, and so then we keep reinforcing the idea like you know the you know like and i'm quoting here jaron lanier who i'm a huge fan of um and i think in like you are not a gadget he says that that you know you say well of course the computer's gonna gonna beat a chess player because that's what a computer is or a computer's gonna be able to mm -hmm. ding and but anyway, I'm getting on a tangent because I'm obsessed with uh, our relationship <laughs> with computers. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> like that's dramatized in not just some of your individual works, but in the history of your work. Like the early stuff, it's like you can see you drawing, you can see your hand going back and forth in a shape. And then you add a puffball, which is pre-made, but because it's pre-made, it's still just gestural. You could just stick it on yeah. as soon as you pull it out of the box and you stick it on there. And these other objects, which you can believe that were just lying around and you just stick them on there. And that is like, there's a similar energy in that to like, you know, like early, like Rauschenberg and Johns and they're sticking objects on there. And you're yeah. like, that's, that's not going to break your flow. But then no. there start to be these objects where you're like, the object has been cut clearly to imitate a kind of gesture that you make. And that yeah. required that you stop, yeah. think about what you're doing, create a, a, like a, a slower piece. And the pieces react to that. Like they don't, they, they slow down, the gesture changes yeah. because you don't, you seem to be not wanting to fake it. 
Now, what do you mean by that? Well, I guess if you were faking it, you would cut like a a rectangle that looked a little off on purpose, like oh yeah, yeah. you know, so it would look, you know, like a like yeah. a, it would look a cheesy mall shape. Yeah, yeah. And then, but then also the compositions <laughs> around them become a little bit different because they respond to that geometric shape. Yeah, and they get a little bit less like wiggly. And a little bit more, more. constructivist, and you know, or, you know, there's something. Yeah. But then you got work like it's it's hard to tell like looking at your page like what's the newest work, but I feel like like the newest work. <laughs> the is, website like, is a mess. A lot yeah. of it is like <laughs> thought out, like the like the one with the window, like there's an installation with the window with like a skylight. Oh yeah, yeah. And that's clearly like an idea is completely formed, and then yeah. it was executed. And yeah. that's, it's like you can watch the like machine parts doing different things to the work or like, like a, a, a pre, the pre, like I have to, two kinds of work. Like I get, I'm going to make things, I'm going to sketch, I'm going to draw, I'm going to improvise. And then like, I'm going to plan something that reenacts yeah. a similar drama, but in a mechanical way. Yeah. And I mean, I would say that it's a huge, I mean, I got off on a tangent on my little obsession. I think it's a huge, huge difference um, because I feel that I've always been the person who doesn't know what I'm doing until I start, you know, but that's sort of not, that's false because if you only do it once, that's one thing. But if you're an artist and you're making, you have a history, you have a memory, you have, you know, a whole sort of world in your head um, from previous experiences and learning and mistakes. And so they are all there when you start so-called with no idea in mind. But but I feel that that's such a part of the process, which goes back to the, you know, the ice cube or, the, you know, the improvisation, which is how I would choreograph, is I would start with a move or an emotion or music, and and that's how it would grow. And I really transplanted, it was only until I was able to transpose that into the process of making art that art became exciting for me um, and made sense to me in terms of who I am and how I think. So, to, to for instance, to take the skylight piece... Um, what happened there was I was working more and more with photography and my photography. And so I decided that I might do some, a lot of work for that show. That was 2013. Um, I, I feel very fondly towards that show because that was the, the second to last show um, in Chelsea, in that space. And that space doesn't, will never exist again. Um, so I feel like it was a, Part of it was a homage, I mean, to that space, um, which I knew so well. But I went in photographing this quote-unquote, you know, white cube and looking for the things that attract me in life. And, like, I'm attracted to the things that people don't notice or the things that don't fit. Or, like, I'm always taking pictures of just crazy stuff on the street where, you know, someone has a handwritten sign that they've taped onto like a hydrant and, you know, that's acceptable or, you know, just all of the, or, you know, you're in the subway and like a sign isn't, is fallen off. And so someone in the MTA has, 
you know, just written something with a magic marker. And here we are in like one of the most expensive cities on the planet. And that's totally, you know, when it comes to it, the hands there and, the, you know, and the <laughs> expedient and let's get this across. And this is the most efficient way to do it. Um, and it's not slick. It's not fancy. It's not, you know, sophisticated. Um, so I feel like that is so much of what I do. And so then to sort of stop and so then back to the, the white cube is like the, the skylight for me. You know, the skylight is, a, is harking back to another, another time, you know. And all around it is white sheetrock and, you know, poured concrete. But there are these, these, these things. And then it's also a window, you know, which is so, 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 so potent. Um, and a skylight. And so it's me photographing the skylight, um, getting the exact measurements so that I am going to be printing it out at exactly the size of it which is enormous. Um, you don't realize how big these skylights are till you print them out. And mm. I, had, I didn't know what I was going to do beyond that. All I knew is that I respond to those skylights and I like the sense that it's this sort of liminal place and it's between different times in our history and it's this, this, this I find, a beautiful structure as well. Um, and sort of spider-like, and it has cracks in it, and it's broken, and it's it's got imperfections. Um, and I didn't know that I was, I didn't know at that moment what else was happening with it. So I knew some of it, but not all of it. And I also don't have a high enough quality, expensive enough camera to take a photorealistic, you know, a non-pixelated, perfect photo. And when I was working, I was at the Electronic Inst Art Institute, or I always forget the name of it, up at Alfred. So I had access 24-7 to these incredible computers and printers. Um, was it, I started drawing. It felt like drawing. So I'm on this huge screen, and I am going over every single millimeter of it and it's becoming like to me more like a painting and it's starting to lose its photograph quality because it's not able to be a photograph and so in a way it's a mistake so it's like a photograph now. yeah because it's like <laughs> a photograph that no photographer would accept and it's a reject like the way a doodle is something you know that stays in your address book and you're not gonna put that on the wall. You're not gonna put that pom-pom on that big painting. God, no, you know? <laughs> and so then it sort of became this weird thing that um, was both a photograph and not a photograph. And I started seeing it as a drawing or a painting. And that was very, very pivotal for me up there at Alfred. And then the stair is made of foam core. So it was all done on site with assistance and with Tomash, who's um, Tomash and Magda own postmasters, and they, you know, the two of them are brilliant. And Tomash is just, you know, he designed that whole space. He's designed the whole space now. I mean, he's incredible, and he helped install the one that is up on the ceiling that runs right up to the to the skylight. So we was that was done like totally improvisational style. <laughs> 
like seat of the pants. <laughs> For people who can't, like it's a little bit, how do I explain what it looks like? Because there's a skylight. And and it's got like a sort of spider-like structure in it. It's blue. Yeah. And you know it's blue beyond because it's sky. And then you took yeah. a photo of it and you kind of uh, printed it out full size and then kind of made this weird. <laughs> it's like crawling up the wall, stare yeah. like it's yeah. like three or four t- three times towards that skylight. Like three versions of it, and you like one yeah. is like steps. It's almost like a swimming pool tile looking. And yeah. the, but they're variations on that same skylight, kind of crawling up to the skylight. Is it always blue? Like if you look up there, your no. piece does they don't match sometimes as sometimes they they, do. they only match at a certain time of day. That's interesting. And that's when I took the picture. And so that was the blue. So the blue that I got was from the photograph. Again, it was like, you know, not again, I use a camera like the way I use a Sharpie marker. I mean, I really, you know, I never studied it, never studied sculpture. And so if I was a photographer who played by the rules, I would have done the proper, you know, because it was backlighting, right? And I would have done the adjustments. Mm -hmm. So some of the photograph and the way it happens is also because of the way that I'm taking the photograph. I'm just taking it the way I want to take it. So that also happens a lot with the photograph now being part of work where... I'm not taking it the way a photographer is taking a picture, you know, in the sense that I'm not a technically oriented person. Um, And then I don't know how to print. And so then I'm printing things like so many different times and things are coming out, which in another person's studio would be a reject. You know, just like if you did a whole bunch of different charcoal drawings uh, uh, that are different tones, and so the photographs just bec- start to become something else. They're, yeah, and I think it's only then that I can work with them. And I think it's only when I stopped thinking about the technical side and the sort of of photography that I could use it in my work. Just like with painting, you know, is I when I can liberate myself from you know rabbit skin glue and glazing and. God oil paint and all of that and the history of art nobody on our podcast likes oil paint by the way (laughs) well you know you're taught that that i mean it's not that way now but for my generation um, no they still fucking teach rabbit skin glue i'm amazed (laughs) they don't teach anything else like they don't teach people how to draw but they teach you like go buy rabbit skin glue like somebody it's like somebody they have somebody in art curricula has real grudge against rabbits (laughs) <laughs> you know, I was a vegetarian at the time when I was exposed to it, so I never did it. Um, Good. And I, I like so for me, like the sharp, the, the sharpie, or the pom pom, or even the photograph, in a weird way, are somehow if I can come at them. Well, I don't know how you come at a pom pom, but <laughs> if you can come at painting, or you can, or I can come at painting, or I could come at. Uh, sculpture, come at photography sort of obliquely or, you know, uh, through the back door, you know, I don't know, or (laughs) climb up the scaffolding or something, or uh, I don't know, then it becomes exciting for me. When you're talking about taking like a a good, like a technically good photograph, like the point of that is in most cases, like most of the things that photographers do to make a photo work are to promote 
like a sense of depth on the two-dimensional rectangle. And once it ceases to be a rectangle, a lot of times the two-dimensional depth isn't a real, your bar for how 2D, what 2D, 3D gets a lot like lower or higher or lower (laughs) because like, because like if it has any depth at all, it's kind of impressive because it's not a rectangle anymore. It's not like, and then again, like a lot of the things with traditional oil painting, the point of them is to promote the sense of depth, like a window, Yeah, you know? Yeah, and once exactly. you stop making a rectangle and you start being interested in this movement left, right, up, down, rather than in, out, then that doesn't have to be as deep because it's moving in a different direction. And that yeah. just interrupts the flow. And so I can see like in both cases, it's about this left, right, up and down composition. You're moving across the wall and up the wall oh, and down the right, wall. Right, right, and that's what you were Through the wall. And, but in, in painting and photos, it's like most of the things that are technical are there so you look like you're going through the wall. And you're yeah. not trying to do that, really. You're trying to grow something that goes, you know. Yeah, I mean, one thing that's striking with the photo, I have two up and, you know, just stuck up on the wall in my apartment and people don't, know that they're photographs. It's very strange. Um, I mean, they're very abstract. One is a, a photograph that might be on my site of, um, I was doing a show a number of years ago in Shenzhen in China, and it was just so incredible experience in every way. But one day I went around just visit, you know, just walking and came upon, you know, this sort of ubiquitous site in China where you know, building people have been, you know, just forced out, displaced overnight. Um, and, you know, just the whole fronts of buildings are, are just exposed. So it's almost like a, you know, you get a little feeling of, you know, an animal who's, you know, a, a carcass where just the skin has been ripped off. There's a real visceral quality. So you're seeing the rebar, you're seeing... The, you know, like this one photograph I took was just these rebar with these boulders attached to them. And then behind it, you can see like the, the a bit of a vanity, it must have been a bathroom, but because there's a scalloped little mirror fragment on a wall. But you, it's so, even as a viewer in in front of it, in the, in the space there, it's just very hard to f- understand what you're looking at. And... So it's like that, and it's very disorienting, which is something that is very important to me in my work, um, is creating disorientation. But I know, I know it's a photograph, but people don't know what it is, and they think that they don't know how it's made. So you disoriented them. You're happy. Yeah. <laughs> Good job, you. <laughs> <laughs> No, I get it. I mean, look, the Shenzhen is like it, it looks like <laughs> each piece of rebar is so wiggly. It's so spaghetti-like that it looks yeah. like a maybe it's a drawing. Maybe you collaged it on there, and then the only the only thing that has depth is that section of mirror, which is broken, and so it looks like maybe you cut it from a magazine and stuck it. You know, yeah. But because I think like it. It looks like maybe it's a computer thing. You no. Know, like co- it's not. I'm just saying it looks like it. And you're happy. Um, yeah. Um, no, that's interesting you say that because I was 
giving a talk, I always love the question and answer period at talks and 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 conversations like this, you know, because it gets you out of your comfort zone or what you what you always say. And right. I, I it was up at UMass, and then afterwards, um, I was asked, "What was I asked?" Oh. Uh, 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 one of the students said, oh, so are you getting these off of like Google Earth or are you getting this off of this or that or something? Not that photo per se, but other things. And it was so interesting, my reaction. I felt like he could, he should have just brought a knife and stabbed me in the heart. Yeah. And it was so interesting. And I was like, Diana, control your anger. Um, But... When the, you have a moment like that, you you if you <laughs> want to be reflective or you know think about these things and think about yourself and what you're doing as an artist, you you listen to that and that question and then my response was just really uh, very provocative for me, a thought provoking and what I realized was a huge part of it is that it. I was there. This is how I see. This is what I saw. This is a memory. It's like a visual. It's a memory in visual form. And it's not like crowdsourcing right. or, or whatever. I mean, it's you not sitting on Google Earth. You were out there. Yeah, <laughs> I was in the real world because it is made by so many machines, starts to organize itself in a way that looks like those things. Like, there are photos of things that look machine-like in the real world because they were created by machines. Yeah, and I should say that, um, I mean, back to the thing about the, you know, the computer chip or um, the motherboard when we were talking a little earlier, I, I think that... I am extremely interested in that fact. And not only the machine made, but how the machine made, almost anything that is machine made or that we've made is generally, I mean, not to put humans down, um, but maybe a poor version of something that already exists in nature. And then wondering, like, you know, sort of like the Edward Tufte, I guess, um, sort of a way of thinking. But why is it, for instance, that, you know, when I'm flying and about to land in New York City or any big city, it looks like a motherboard at night? And Mm. why does a motherboard look like certain kind of you know, sort of cellular molecular structures or, you know, and just this, it's like we're in this unbelievable echo chamber. It's just, and why do my doodles look like a motherboard? I'm not trying to make a motherboard, but something about systems and the way systems exist both in nature and in our brain and in our bodies. And that's something that is very, uh, very fascinating for me and how, how to conflate those things um, and how connected they are. Um, But also, like, with this building in Shenzhen, I think, or the motherboard or any of that is also the the man-made machinery that is hidden. And so 
I say Apple is a poster child of this, you know, that the incredible sophistication that goes into what we're doing right now and how it's completely concealed in this beautiful container, sort of like the human body, you know, like our organs and all our blood and all of our veins and all the messy stuff is is beautifully contained, you know, within our skin. Certainly it becomes less beautiful as, as we age. Um, so I think a lot of the work that I do is looking for the stuff that's somehow gotten out, you know, like, um, I mean, the typical example would be, you know, opening up the hood of a car, um, but that the impulse to conceal um, is very interesting to me. Right. Something my daughter got really interested in recently, she saw under the hood of a car. She's like, what is all this? <laughs> She's nine. <laughs> Well, That's another important car. part of being an artist is to try to right to to keep that nine year old <laughs> alive. Yeah, she helps uh, me with that. The sense yeah. of wonder, like uh, it is interesting. Oh yeah. I realized we didn't actually ask about when did you start making art, like and decide you're going to be an artist professionally. Oh. Well, I, I'll say one thing. I will say just that it came to my mind um, was just when I was a kid and started to draw from life, I was always drawing like the TV or like anything that had a cord or like the phone. Like I, those were the things that uh, I was drawing. I mean, at a certain point when I was younger, I was doing beautiful ladies, you know, but then <laughs> like the stereo or yeah, I did tons and tons of drawings like that. But, um, which is just interesting to me as a grown up um, <laughs> to think about that. But I feel in a way I didn't really own the artist in me and that that's what I was going to do until I uh, went to Hunter and applied. I, it was the only grad school at that I, I decided, you know, for real I'm going to be an artist, for real I'm going to a grad school. And I was living in New York, been here for six years. I had been at the New York Studio School for a period of time and I applied to Hunter only because um, I wanted to stay in New York, and I heard it was a good school. And but you I, had art by that point, right? I oh mean, yeah, you had made I had tons some of art. So you had oh, been, in, yeah. you had decided you were going to make some, you know, relatively committed, you know, art you rather than officially oh, serious. Now that you're going yeah. to yeah, but I think that it was the that was the first time where I would like be at a cocktail party, and if someone asked me what. I <laughs> I was or what a I was prepared doing. answer would be. I would say I'm an artist. <laughs> so you right, just right. started like taking classes in in college, and then sort of were like, okay, I've made enough pieces that I could actually apply with these, and I'll be an artist now. No, no. The where did I mean, that did, art that you applied with came from? I did AP art in high school. Okay, and so I, you were kind I, of... I did. Yeah, I took painting classes and drawing classes in in college. I took art history. I was at the studio school. I always had a studio. So you were doing that along with everything else. Yeah, I was totally doing art, but I don't think I said, this is what I'm going to be when I grow up. Mm. Okay, so where did the, I I guess, like, where did the the Diana Cooper style come from? Like, when did that start to be what you were doing, the the geometric doodling stuff? That started at Hunter. And it started 
in a strange way, I discovered, well, I should say I was, um, I won't go into any detail, but I live with a hereditary illness and I had just had to have major surgery and, um, was it Ehlers-Danlos syndrome? What? Was it Ehlers-Danlos <laughs> syndrome? What's that? It, I don't even know what that it's is. It's my girlfriend's hereditary illness, so I just was, in oh, case God. it was a coincidence, but I guess not. Okay. <laughs> okay. No, no. Um, and I was having, um, it was my fourth or fifth surgery, and I had just started at Hunter, and I had, I was, I was convalescing, and, um... A dear, dear friend of mine had uh, brought me over just some little pads of paper and some um, some pens and some nice little inks and brushes. And, you know, at that point I had been very interested in Ava Hess's drawings, you know, so I was thinking she was sort of somehow in in my mind. But I was also starting to look at my own doodling and it was something about being home, not being able to really do anything, being alone a lot, and having just started at Hunter and just really wanting to not stop. And what I was doing at Hunter then was I was making huge canvases. They were unstretched with like lace and stencil and oil paint and spray paint and, you know, sort of toxic nightmare. Um, so I certainly wasn't going to be able to do that in my apartment. And there was just this intimacy of what I was doing. And and I think it enabled me to see the doodling that I was doing all the time, but to see it for what it was and to see that it was more connected and more interesting for me than what I was doing in the studio. And I think also just, you know, I mean, I, I never talk about my health, but... Um, so I'm not going to go into detail, but, it, you know, it's something I live with every day. Um, but I think at that moment, it just, you feel life is short. And man, you know, I'm not, I'm an artist. I've chosen to this path that is just damned hard, you know, mm. and that I didn't even necessarily want to. And I've been embarrassed about because I don't want to follow my parents' footsteps and all of this stuff. And I thought, man, this, you know, do what you want to do. Yeah, <laughs> and there was that. It was and and, and just going to write that on your wall somewhere. <laughs> yeah, like gosh. <laughs> yeah, it was just this moment of just feeling I, I'm going to embarrass myself. I don't care. I and I started really feeling the power of embarrassment. Things I was doing were not comfortable for me, you know, and I started like putting pom-poms. <laughs> it was like, this is totally ridiculous. Look what like, I made, everybody. Right. Like, yeah. You know, God damn it, you're going to take these pom-poms seriously. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I don't know. Um, that's a very personal uh, account of, of, of it. I mean, it sounds like <laughs> all that other stuff got back into the art eventually. Like, but it was like the doodle line which was very hand personal and intimate imposed an order 
that you could then use all that all the stuff that was going on in the studio w- was dictating its own rules and then when it was just back to like a pen on a pad of paper you were like this this is the this is the lead instrument yeah and all those other things have to back this up exactly yeah it was like that was sort of that stuff was like cherries and sprinkles and frosting and i mean whatever it was it wasn't it wasn't the cake yeah and i wanted to have the cake and eat it too (laughs) (laughs) when you're stuck in bed for whatever reason there's an intimacy of your pictures can be read in many cases like there's like you could get up really close to them and go oh then this happens and then that happens Mm -hmm. it's not like a big statement and it goes bing no that's not the you know and that that like a reading like slowness is uh i mean i do a lot of drawing without getting out of getting up myself um in my case it's just because i'm lazy (laughs) but uh, no it's that you figured out how how to make work what works yeah, for you? I mean, yeah, yeah I mean, but yeah, I don't have like a medical excuse. Um, oh, oh. Although I can say like I have to stay in bed because my girlfriend's sick. I can say that and I get, a, you know, that sounds better, right? But anyway, but I mean, a lot of times I'll be sitting there and I'm like working on that scale. And I think it informs the way I look at everyone's art because mm-hmm. I really like to sit with work and I expect a lot of, a long read out of it. If yeah. it's too fast, a lot of times, if there's not enough details and it's too clean of a statement and there's not enough shifting the little pers- like I'm like I'm like yeah, like you you didn't you didn't do enough with my attention, you know, right. or something. Um uh, So Bosch and Richard Scary are the big <laughs> yeah, Richard, oh Scary. Richard Scary is my favorite, where you could look far away and then you have to go in Look at everything happening around. He's the subtext of all contemporary art, according to John, so far. He just keeps coming up. Tars and trucks and (laughs) things that go. I have to revisit him. Revisit Richard Scarry. Can't say enough. I mean, Bosch, I'm with you. I mean, anonymous Bosch. And and it's so fascinating to encounter because I, you know, usually I encounter him in a, obviously in a museum, but not work, not a, a show of his work, but he's among you know, yeah. quote-unquote normal people. Um, and it's just so f- fantastic. Like, I think it was at the Prado a number of years ago. And, you know, there's phenomenal... I mean, you've got Velasquez, you've got Goya, you've got just incredible things, but then you come across a Bosch, and you're back to... It's like alien. And I love seeing him that way, too. I love seeing him in the context um, of his contemporaries. Yeah, and, he's an eruption... Yeah. Yeah. It's so strange how much he changes your image of what those people's, everyone's, per, like, mind was like. You know, like, because we tend to think of them as reduced to the only the objects that we can see, you know. And, and so you think, well, somebody was thinking of, like, a tomato with legs eating a colander. Like... <laughs> like, like they weren't that different than we, you know, like one for the team. I'm yeah. glad that guy was there, you know, like first art weirdo, yeah. <laughs> but that no, that makes me think though of a couple of things. Um, I think it was, what was it? I think it was um, Samuel Johnson said one time. He said the first man 
who ate an oyster. Now that man was a brave man. <laughs> um, or that apparently a lot of these things that we now know exist in the depths of the sea, you know, every now and then those would, they'd wash up. And so here you are like in the 16th century or the whatever, you know, and suddenly something that looks like a science fiction creation is there. And right. um, that, that's just something yeah. recently I became aware of, which is so interesting because if you're belie- you believe in God, you know, you believe in the order of things, and then it's like a bioluminescent, like, right. transparent fish that's like yeah. a perfect circle. <laughs> yeah, like or one that's terrifying. Yeah, you know, a lot of them also are are, are yeah. terrifying. Someone brought a pineapple to the king of England, you know, and he was like, "What? I'm <laughs> is this?" But there's there's like a there's some Hulebeck's essay on Lovecraft points out that he's the first person who writes a fantastic story which has scientific language of any kind. And now we think of that as like the the really sort of mundane X-Files kind of horror story. But at the time, a quantifiable but alien thing. I mean, a lot like octopuses didn't show up in art very much except in Japan for a long time. But then after, but we think of them almost as a modern shape. You know, you don't think of like a medieval person just seeing those colors because they were kind of outside their belief system in a certain way. Like, they were not symmetrical in, in, you know, like, at least looking. And they the colors didn't match that the symbology was off because they would change color. You know, like, there were so many things that didn't fit about a lot of animals. And there are lots of animals that did fit very well because they had seen them so many times and they had made them part of their landscape. It's interesting. I'm thinking a couple of things. One thing is the, you know, the power of the person with the oyster or the person stumbling on an octopus on, you know, on that's dead or washed up, or the king seeing the pineapple, that it brings us back to this, the the importance of physical space and the encounter with the object. And thinking of that question I got about, are these from Google Earth, and how that links with the importance of art as being something that is experienced in physical space still. And then I'm thinking about um, a friend of mine who was talking about her child, and you might identify with this, was she sort of was mourning the fact that if her kid says, you know, asks about what anything like, you know, Mount Everest or an octopus or a, a dolphin or a, I don't know, anything. It says, what does that look like? Or, or what does that look like? She's like, oh, da, 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 here it is. And so yeah. everything that you could imagine, anything you have a word for almost, can you can see it in an instant. But what I actually like a lot is that the things now that they can ask questions about are all concepts like bigger ideas like because those aren't explained you know like if somebody's like what's structuralism you know like (laughs) there was a bunch of polish people who came to visit and they could look up everything on their phones they were tech guys but they were like what's xing because they saw it (laughs) everywhere you know like 
bike xing you know uh, something we take totally for granted uh, but they had no way to look it up you know like nothing explains <laughs> that and so i wow. just i and you know kids are not going to stop asking questions because they actually like just asking like they don't necessarily want to know right so like the things they're going to ask just get more exotic you know or, or i feel like like what's all this stuff in a car that's like a lot more demanding and rigorous, like John's daughter, you know, like than oh, what's a car. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like explaining yeah. that, it's like, yeah, you can't look that up on Wikipedia or you wouldn't understand. You'd be like, all right, okay, so cars, there's internal combustion, right? I just feel like somebody can do a little bit of that work. Then you can, you now have to ask a harder question, and that's interesting. Oh, I you know? yeah, no, I agree, and I'm thinking of little, 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 like four or five year olds who might be drawing a picture of something that they've never seen or, you know, they know the word mountain. And so then they're imagining this versus it was a story was then, mom, what is, what are, what are mountains look like? And, and so that the, 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 it was more not what you're saying, which I totally agree with, but more the relationship with the imagination at that point. I mean, it's something I think about a lot from having taught children is just seeing how they're making art up into a certain age when they then can start the mimetic project and what happens um, to most of them is that it becomes a how we it becomes homogenized right? it all looks like a house I'm not saying that's the same but I think I was thinking more about the role of the imagination but I don't know they do really do see things they'll probably you get blown away like because, you know, you think that the Grand Canyon looks like a picture of the Grand Canyon, and then you go and you're like, yeah. oh, no, it's not. And that's, that's nice. Yeah. Well, the Grand Canyon's a good example <laughs> is something that is not, like a great artwork, I think, it is not communicated through mm. a picture. There's mm-hmm. no way, I mean, I, as someone who went to the, when I went to the Grand Canyon, yeah, I was unprepared. Mm-hmm. I'm a, I remember just coming around that corner. In the car and seeing it, like, what? Yeah, there's no image that can prepare you. <laughs> sure. I mean, I remember uh, many years ago, I was reading the author Walker Percy, and he wrote a lot about the relationship, but, and this is pre-internet, so it was a, sounds very quaint, but about, you know, the postcard, or, you know, it's sort of in line with Bart or Sontag, but, you know, he's a fictional writer, so he's writing about it differently. <laughs> But about, you know, the, the, the Grand Canyon postcard, you know, and everyone's got the postcard and then you get there and you're going to be disappointed. And so I had read his essay on that many years earlier. And it was interesting because I was like, I'm not disappointed that, you know, no, I could have seen a million postcards. <laughs> didn't ruin it for me. He was not a painter, I guess. <laughs> no. <laughs> Yeah, I remember like the first time I got to like Tokyo or Rome, I was like, I haven't been lied to, but this is better. You know, like yeah. it, it's a thing. Uh, thank you so much. It's, yeah. it's so nice thank to talk you. to you. <laughs> we Likewise, it. I was saying to John, it was it's so nice to meet you and to get your email and to invite me to do this. But now it's going to be an editing nightmare for you. I, I feel <laughs> sorry. Oh, not for us. It's all for gold. <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> yeah, we're just going to walk away now. Oh, no. <laughs> no, it's all gold. All right, all right. Thanks again. It's very nice to talk to you. Thank Likewise. You.
Thanks for listening to this episode of We Eat Art. Check out our guest, Diana Cooper's latest work. I recently completed High Wire, a site-specific installation for the Moss Center for the Arts at Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, Virginia. Double Take, my permanent outdoor commission for the MTA on Roosevelt Island, will open in 2017. Also, John has more of my artwork in my Tumblr at the pen. Or just Google John Mahias. And Zach has a new book with Chana Maivo coming out October 4th. Next podcast, we'll be talking with Carolina Miranda. If you want to see images of some of the artists that we reference, you should check out our Instagram page or our Facebook page at We Eat Art. You can support this podcast by liking us on Facebook and Twitter at We Eat Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell a friend. We Eat Art is sponsored by No One. Yeah. And is produced by Paping and Mnemonic Recordings. Our sound producer, engineer, and editor is Justin Asher. And we hope you enjoyed the show. Or if you didn't enjoy the show, you're a bad person. And so we want to inflict suffering on you. Thank you. All right. See you later.